we're back in Nehemiah 10. We'll actually finish Nehemiah 10 today. We only have a few chapters left. Uh, and when we're done with Nehemiah, I can tell you in advance, we are going to move into the book of Hebrews when we're done with Nehemiah. Now, Hebrews has a Old Testament sounding name, but it's in the New Testament, right? So uh, there was an old story. A guy told the pastor, he said, man, I love the Bible. He said, what's your favorite Old Testament book? He said, the book of Hebrews. So that's actually in the New Testament, even though it has that name. And so when we're done with Nehemiah, we'll go and look at uh, this pivotal book in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews. But that's still several weeks away, um, either February or March. I don't know when we'll get to it exactly. But Nehemiah 10, we, we, um, if you recall... I'm sorry, why, not, why did I say Nehemiah? Yes, we are there. Yes. Nehemiah 10. Uh, we covered verses um, 1 through 31. We really never read verses 1 through 27, which is uh, a listing of names. But we did get through verse 31, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 32. And so we'll cover verses 32 through 39, Nehemiah chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. It should be marked and ready for, ready for you. Nehemiah chapter 10, starting with verse 32. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbath the new moons, and the set feast for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel for all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests and the Levites and the people for the bringing of wood offering into the house of our God according to our Father's house at the appointed time of the year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the trees, all the fruit of the trees, and year by year to the house of the Lord, and to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, and the fruits from all kinds of trees to the rooms. Uh, I'm sorry, the new wine and the oil to the priest, to the storerooms and the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of grain and the new wine, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And we will not neglect the house of our God. If you get nothing out of it, you can underline that last, verse, that last part of the uh, verse there. And we will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would anoint and bless your word. This Bible study will be used by you for your purposes to speak to each heart. Lord, we thank you for your word, and may it truly be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path here this morning. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. It's been well said that the only ability the Lord is looking for is our availability. Amen? God's not saying, man, I could really use some talented people. It's the heart that says, Lord, here I am. Use me. Send me. Here's what I have, Lord. Use it for your glory and your purposes. And the more we appreciate mercy, if you recall the previous verses, and especially back in chapter 9, it was all about the mercy of God really got a hold of people's heart because they were living not where they should be, and God's mercy instead of his judgment was poured out. And the more we appreciate the mercy and grace we've been given, and we've been given a lot of mercy and grace, haven't we? Just this week we've been given a lot of mercy and grace. But the more we appreciate it, the more giving we become. We become that much more open-handed with our time and with our talent and with our treasure, none of which is actually ours. Did you know that your time doesn't really belong to you? You don't belong to you, and your money doesn't belong to you. For God himself says in Exodus 19.5, this is what God says. This is not pastor speaking. This is God himself. God says in Exodus 19.5, for all the earth is mine. That pretty much settles it, doesn't it? The psalmist expresses this as well. He says in Psalm 50.11, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Someone might say, hmm, he said beast of the forest cattle, pretty much stuff that I don't ever care to own anyway, right? I don't own that stuff, don't care to own that stuff. Uh, he, he has control of that stuff. But he also said, all the earth is mine, and that means every single thing in it, down to the atomic level. In their book, uh, God and Money, I've been reading this book, I've loved it, uh, God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School, authors John Cortines and Gregory Balmer neither of which are pastors, by the way. Neither of these gentlemen are pastors. They're just two faithful believers. They were working on their MBA at Harvard um, and really had a, they were already giving to their church. They were involved. They really had a desire to be millionaires and retire early. And a lot of Harvard MBAs go on to do quite well financially. And so they really had this uh, mindset that, that we want to do really well, but we'll still make sure we're giving to God and still part of a, a, a church and uh, being good believers. But they began studying the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation while they're at Harvard um, about what God had to say from Genesis to Revelation about giving, about stewardship, about financial resources, about the responsibilities of believers with financial resources, and generosity. They, they, they went in with a blank slate and said, we're just going to study all of Genesis to Revelation. What does the Bible say about it? Don't get all bogged up in you know, uh, messages that have been preached, but just what does the Scripture say? And in the book, which, which I highly recommend, I, I, think, I think I'd pay some Christians to read it, uh, they write this. They said, while many of us are willing to acknowledge, listen to what they write, while many of us are willing to acknowledge God's sovereignty over natural creation, i.e. mountains, oceans, even the blessing of human life, we are typically loath to attribute similar sovereignty over our houses, vacation plans, and paychecks. But people say, God owns all the mountains. 
God owns the whales, but he just doesn't own my stuff. True, isn't it? God, you can have the sun, you can have the stars, you get the Pacific, you get Yellowstone, you get Grand Canyon, and this stuff right here is mine. By the way, the same distorted mindset crops up in our kids, and it drives parents crazy when kids have this same mindset. Your house is like a little world, if you will. Mom and dad, you get the bills, you get the mortgage, you get to buy the groceries, you get the insurance payment, you get the school supplies, you get all the stuff that costs that we don't really want to deal with. You guys can handle all the big stuff, but give me the clothes and the electronics and all the stuff that I want, right? You kind of see that the same mindset that's in adults flows down the sin nature. It's the all mine. Uh, and, and even like siblings, like one sibling's not allowed to look at the other sibling's stuff. And the parent walks through the room saying, I bought both of those things, right? Yet as adults, we can be the same way with God. God's like, I gave that to you. What, what are you talking about? That belongs to you. It can be out of selfishness. It can be out of ignorance. It can be out of fear. Regardless, we're ignoring the goodness and the sovereignty of God when these attitudes crop up. But, but here in Nehemiah 10, here in Jerusalem, what was taking place, you remember they were going through a revival. They were going through a revival. The mercy of God had been poured out, and they started to see the areas that they were living that were opposed to the will of God. And here the leaders and the families and the individuals, they gathered in Jerusalem reaffirming that all that they had, everything that they had, belonged to the Lord, and that he and his will and his priorities should be the center of their lives. That's why I said we will not neglect the house of the Lord. They were saying, finally, once again, remember the tabernacle was put in the center for a reason. The temple was put in the center because it was to orient their lives around God, not we'll fit him in with our time, talent, and treasure where we think it makes sense. And let me say, let me say to you today, in my flesh, I don't really enjoy, personally, teaching on scriptural text, and there's lots of them in the Bible, uh, that deal with money and financial stewardship because of all the misuse and bad teachings of it down through the ages. So it's not really a, a fun topic uh, to teach on. But God is not apologizing for it, by the way, or amending his counsel or amending his word because other people have fleeced flocks or because other people have put people in bondage or laid guilt trips or used fear tactics or deceived people, you name it, all for financial gain. God's not apologizing. His truth is still truth regardless of anyone else distorting it. Amen? Amen? These eight verses, the heart of this entire covenant, remember that uh, chapter 10, if you, your Bible, most of your Bibles probably have a little title in it, they seal a covenant. They say, we are committing to these things once again. And the heart of this entire co uh, covenant and commitment, and in fact, all of God's word, is for his glory. The whole covenant is for his glory. Secondly, for our growth. God does everything for his glory first, but he always is growing us in the process. Amen? Amen. God has the ability to do multiple things at once, and so we sometimes can only do one thing at a time, but God can do a lot at one time. But his glory is paramount, our growth, and then the third is others' benefit, right? 
you know, Jesus, others, you, right? <laughs> Joy, right? That, uh, although the uh, order is a little different as I just laid it out there. But this area of giving is no exception. It's paramount to the Lord that his people be giving people. And so this is what God tells me, is what he tells uh, pastors, is what he tells us all. Read the text, but he tells me as a pastor, uh, we go verse by verse through the Bible. So whatever we come up to is what we're going to look at. As we go verse by verse, if it's in there, we want to understand it. We want to apply it to our lives. And so he tells me, read the text, communicate his heart, communicate his instructions the best I possibly can, uh, as a flawed individual, the best I possibly can, and guess what? God says, I'll handle the results. I'll take care of how it lands. And whether you're here today and you're already enthusiastically generous, you, are, you love being generous, you love to help people, you love to give, or you're really hesitant to part with something that you think you're going to need. And because you think you're going to need it, you're really hesitant to part with it. Let God, not me, let God speak to you this morning and give you revelation, give you mercy, give you more grace and more faith to say, Lord, I'm going to stop clinch-fisting this and open hand with my life and everything else that you give me. And so we're looking at this morning renewed giving. We covered two points. You, you, won't rem you, you might want to go back and listen to the one the uh, week before the week before Christmas uh, if you want to look at part one of this 10th chapter. Uh, but we covered two other uh, points. Today we're looking at renewed giving. And by way of brief review, this is what we looked at prior in the same chapter there was four, three things that we looked at that they were, were negligent, rebellious in, withholding, and just not in a right walk with the Lord, and they renewed each of these. One was an area of purity, right? Because you can have people that are really giving and are not living a moral life, amen? I've met people that money's not an issue. They have so much, they, hey, I'll, I'll tithe, I'll give this, I don't care, but they're not living a moral life. Purity was important. Worship. People that are giving and maybe even uh, in living moral, but, but they're not, their worship is not genuine. Their worship is not sincere. Their worship is not according to the Lord. They're worshiping the way they feel that they want to. And so they had to return to these things as God had laid them out. And then the third is giving. So God says that this is, this is part of the deal. This is part of how I prune and make sure I keep you walking by faith and not by sight. This third area of giving. So you recall, uh, we looked at these initial components of the covenant. The return, the, the purity was, was a return to God's sanctity and marriage. And no more intermixing with pagan religions because their moral, their moral kind of failures of intermixing in marriage also brought false worship in. And their intermixing of marriage brought pagan religions. Uh, they were no longer doing the proper observance of the feast of the worship days, of the Sabbath days, of the Sabbath years, of the holy days. They basically, hey, you know, we'll go to church like 10 out of 52 weeks, right? It just was just kind of, hey, we'll go when we feel like it, and God will be good with it. And he wasn't good with it. He'd already, they'd already been carried away into bondage to Babylon for 70 years, and God was saying, uh, this is all going to happen again 
more judgment's going to come if, if you guys don't repent. But God gave mercy. He gave mercy. He gave a stay, and, and their hearts were softened. He sent Nehemiah. He sent Ezra, right? Ezra and Nehemiah were both used of the Lord to speak to the people. So, Lord, I don't want you ignoring these things. You can't change them. I'm not gonna, God's not going to change his word for us. We have to change for his word. Not, he's not going to change the word. He wasn't going to change the law for them. Uh, there was no more exploiting people for trade or business uh, and using the, the holy days uh, for trading. And Jesus, Jesus made this clear that it still bothered him. He did what with the money tables? When the church had been turned into a marketplace, and especially for greedy gain, he was furious about it because it misrepresented God. God's never wanted anyone's money. God wants people's heart. We'll get to this. But rather, he wanted them to, on the, uh, on the holy days and the Sabbath days, for them to be reverent times of rest. God wants to give us rest. Isn't that great? The world does not want to give you rest, by the way. It wants you running like a tre treadmill nonstop. God wants to give you rest. He wants to have you have time of reflection. Last night, people that came to our prayer night last night left refreshed when actually the mindset would be, I need to be at home on the couch so I can rest. And prayer will make you rest more than the couch time. I'm t I promise you. I've had to learn this the hard way. God tells me again and again, the very things you think are going to give you rest probably will not. God says, but my things, take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. And he wants them looking up to God and worship. So we outline the first two components, renewed impurity and uh, renewed in worship. And really the essence of this whole covenant is that the mercy of God, by the mercy of God, the people are renewed. By the mercy of God, they're restored to worship. That's the message of the whole Bible, by the way. By the mercy of God, we're restored. Amen? The whole Bible that's by His grace and mercy, He restores us to the worship that we were created. We were created to worship. That's what Jesus said in John 4. The Father is looking for true worshipers. We were created to worship. And this last component of this sealed covenant, remember they signed their names to this covenant. This was a big deal. This last component of the sealed covenant is specifically it specifically deals with the recommitting of the people to giving to the work of God, to giving to the priesthood, to giving to the household of God for everything from the operational upkeep of the temple to the actual worship, the sacrifices, and even storerooms for future need. This is no small insignificant list. It's a big list of things that are needs for the temple. And this is a recommitment on their part to not neglect these things. But, uh, but given that God, given that God could do all, would you agree with me that God could do all this without the help of anybody? Yes. Jesus said, I can turn these stones into bread. Right? He's like, I've, you know, hey, he's going to pay Caesar his tax. Give me a fish. Right? God's never needed anything from us. We need a lot from him, though. Amen? And it's, and it's at the inner man level. It's the spiritual level. But given that God could do the, all this without the help of people, we're reminded that anything the Lord asks or requires of his people always molds us into more faith. More faith. The just shall live by what? Faith. Always molds us into faith. And the area of faith and giving and becoming givers with a heart of joy is what really God is after. I want you to have faith, but I also want you to have joy with that faith. 
blesses the heart of God. You probably know this verse. For God loves a cheerful giver. True? Hey, he didn't want people just to sign a covenant, say, all right, we're going to sign this covenant, but this is the most miserable thing we have ever signed. We're going to give. We ain't going to like it, right? We're going to make sure the temple's operational, make sure the priests are taken care of, blah, blah, blah. Oil in the, you know, yeah, there needs oil for the menorah. That's important. We get it. We'll make sure all that's done, but we're not going to like it. No. This is the New Testament, by the way, Paul writing, uh, God wants a cheerful giver. Now, I've heard pastors, again, and, and you, they're, they're overly worried about what people think instead of what God thinks, would say, and, and if you can't give cheerfully, God does, he doesn't want you to give at all. Hmm. Let's look at those three options <laughs> and see if you took an SAT test. Let's see how these, God says there's only one correct answer here. Cheerful giving, non-cheerful giving, I won't give at all. Which one, when you stand before God, will he say, you made a wise choice. Since you couldn't give cheerfully, you decided not to give at all. <laughs> Actually, there's a parable of that. It's in Matthew chapter 25. The guy buries his brick. says, I just won't do anything at all. And Jesus cast the wicked and lazy servant into outer darkness. So that's not a good multiple choice. I will never preach that to people. You know what you should do? You should just not even give anything. Because you, if you can't do it cheerfully, no, no, God's saying your heart needs to reorient to number one. God says, I want to change your heart. Once I change your heart, the rest is axiomatic. The heart is the issue. He says, I, I want you to have a cheerful heart, not begrudging, but you'll have to take those steps. By the way, that would be like saying, if you can't love your spouse cheerfully, just don't love them at all. I mean, I've heard this preaching sometimes on the radio. I'm like, where would you get this mindset? Hey, if you can't love them really well, just don't love them. Just wait till you can. No. God wants us to respond with a changed heart. Say, Lord, my heart is in the wrong place here. I need to do this. And by the way, a lot of things we need to do, we do first. God starts to change. As the feet get moved in the right direction, everything else starts to line up. But where does this start? Where does this re-giving start for the people in Jerusalem and, and perhaps for us as well? This renewed giving, uh, we'll look at uh, two things. One, you have to have a personal conviction. Someone else's conviction will never, ever replace what you are convinced of. You have to be convinced, not by me, but by the Scriptures and by the Holy Spirit. And when the Scripture and the Holy Spirit... By the way, once the Scripture and the Holy Spirit convince you of something, uh, raise your hand if you could be convinced that God does not exist. But what if a really smart atheist tries to capture you at a Starbucks and, and gives you the most cogent argument for why God does not exist? No, you're now convinced by not a pastor. You're convinced by the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. And it doesn't matter if the most powerful man on earth tries to convince you and says... I'll give you a trillion dollars if you would believe that Jesus didn't exist or that God doesn't exist. You're, you're convinced. So in other words, once there's conviction on something, you can't be moved. You're solid. Now, you need God's help. You need daily grace, daily mercy. But your conviction becomes grounded in truth. In verse, 20, in verse 32, we see the depth of commitment. We made ordinances of ourselves. The commitments in life are based on 
all the commitments we have in life are based on real conviction. If anything you commit to in life, you have a conviction about it. If you commit to bathing, you are convinced it's important, right? You are convinced it's important. Anyone who has ever committed their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ has become personally, when we, when we see people get saved, they have, we, we call it a personal dedication, right? They have personally come to Christ. They have to personally be convinced and convicted of their need for a Savior. I can't convince a person that they need Jesus. Now, Jesus can make it clear to them, but they have to become convinced personally, right? So there has to be a personal conviction, fully convinced. Nobody can make the decision for them. We call it a personal decision. They have to be personally persuaded that I need salvation, and Jesus is the only way. I'll never forget my wife and I. Uh, we actually recently found out, we were thumbing through, that we, it was in a bi an old Bible. We, could, we, never, we knew we were saved in early June 1995. We found out maybe a month ago, the date, it was June 11th. We found out like literally like five weeks ago when the date was. It was like a big deal to us. We're, you know, this is all we, didn't ever, we never knew. We just knew it was early June, and it was dated June 11, 1995, and I remember telling her uh, when I turned to her and I was under heavy conviction to go forward, give my life to Christ, I said, I'm going forward, um, and she said the same thing, but I was, she, the Lord had convinced her at the exact same time, but I was so personally convinced by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that I knew I had to go forward and surrender my life to Jesus. And nobody could have stopped me from going forward. I was going forward. You would have had to shoot me to keep me from going forward. I was, it was a done deal. Lord, I am going forward. And my wife, no matter what, even if, she, even if she had turned to me and said, well, this is crazy. I'm not staying with you. I still would have gone forward. I, I can tell you it was, it was that convincing of the Holy Spirit. And praise God, she said, I'm going forward too. And we got saved on the same day. Um, but nobody had to convince us after we got saved. Again, once conviction has come by the Holy Spirit and God, you accept the Scriptures as true, nobody had to convince us to start going to church. We didn't need anyone banging down our door saying, you need to go to church. It, the Holy Spirit says, you start, you start going. We started opening our Bibles. We started making changes to how we used alcohol and lots of other uh, lifestyle changes and changes to some of the music, especially mine, which was worse than hers, and, uh, and places that we would go. The, the Lord just convicted us, that's got to go, that's got to go, that's got to go. And, you know, no one had to convince us that these things, the Holy Spirit, and we'd read a verse and we'd say, this says this. And we don't have someone talking us out of it. That's what the verse says. We would see these kind of things, and so uh, we would follow them. And uh, one of the things I was convinced of really immediately by the Spirit uh, and the words, uh, was things that would come out of my mouth. I used to play basketball every Saturday morning, every Saturday morning, usually hung over with all my other friends in South Florida, and we'd play basketball, and we'd, we'd call sweating it out. Some of you guys may remember this term. You'd go sweat it out, and we would go, and, uh, but the Scriptures made clear that things that were coming out of my mouth uh, had to stop. The Scriptures were clear. No filthiness, no coarse jesting, no cursing, all of that stuff, I knew it had to stop, and it did. And other things had to start. Other things had to start. I had to get into fellowship. I had to get disciple. However we could, whatever it took, wherever we could, had to share sharing a testimony. Had to invite people to church. I had a girl cut my hair, and you guys have heard the story. If she hadn't invited me, I don't know. 
I mean, it played a big role in me coming where she said I could get fired, but God's got a call on your life. And so I said, people did that to me. I got to do the same. Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And so uh, anything that Christ had given in his word, we both recognized, me and my wife, we recognized it was the Spirit's conviction, and it needed to be applied in our life. We recognized if we saw it in the word, God wanted to do that in us as he had done in others. <clears throat> we actually almost immediately became giving people. Uh, we were not giving people before we got saved. Uh, I would ride by anybody you know, that get a job. You know, that was my attitude, right? I was not a giving person before I got saved. But we became giving people almost immediately. I was pretty selfish prior to salvation. I was a very selfish person, felt like, you know, I earn what I get, they should earn what they get kind of thing, and just that, that attitude. But giving from God... Uh, you know, it, it, from our income didn't start for a couple of years. Uh, we got saved at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and we were, uh, just like here, there was no offering plate passed. There was not an offering plate going down the road. They just had boxes. I, for a while, I didn't even know, I don't know if anyone gives any here. You know, that kind of, I didn't even know where they were and that kind of stuff. They, we didn't pass it around. We knew somebody was giving because the lights were on and seemed like everything was <laughs> operational and somebody was doing something because it, it seemed like, Things were doing well. Um, things were happening. But for whatever reason, when we first got saved, we, were reading, we didn't give, and it just that didn't cross our mind for whatever reason. Uh, but as time went on, um, I, I would highlight something in my Bible, and it would speak to me about the heart of God uh, as, it, uh, as it replied to me giving back to him um, of what he'd given me. So I would just highlight these verses, and I think my wife would do the same thing. And uh, this, this passage I remember highlighting in my Bible, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. And in Matthew 10, 28, freely give, if you freely receive, freely give. And so these verses, I'd highlight them, and there was no one preaching on them. They just were the Holy Spirit preaching to me on them, saying, I need you to understand what that means. And so I would. I'd start to, all right, what does it mean? Then I, I'd think, well, here's what I go in my mind. We're in our... 20s, finished in college. My wife's working on her uh, master's at the time down there. And um, uh, I think, well, we hardly have anything left after our bills, after our loans, after our student debt. Does this sound like a familiar discussion to anybody? We would, we would like start talking about this over coffee. We, we ain't got enough to do what we currently are doing. How in the world would we be able to give to God? Uh, we'd, it's, I'd start discussing with her, and we'd, we'd say, but the scriptures seem pretty clear on this. This is no one, by the way, no one is knocking on our door. There's just no, we're getting no messages on This is just us and our Bibles. And the Spirit's prompting was clear. All Jesus had done for us was clear. He said, I've bought you with a price. I've bought you with a price. And we thought, whether this works or not, let's start giving. That's what we thought. We said, maybe this will all blow up in our face. But let's start giving anyway. No pastor, no other believer that I can remember. There was no other believers really telling us, hey, you guys should do this. It was just us and the scriptures. And from, from time to time, I would hear a solid teaching on the radio. Uh, you know, I'd hear someone that would preach something, but then those things would contribute to some degree and some insights or something. But understand, uh, we have to come to the place. And why I say all that, we have to come to the place of a personal conviction. We have to know that the word has convinced us, thus saith the Lord, and I will follow. And we came to the personal conviction that the Lord really did, uh, really did want us uh, to give and to, and to be givers. I, and, and even early on, we remember we didn't have 
much, we, we ended up pulling up to this uh, couple that was walking down the side of the road because we were living in Charlotte. And we put them in a hotel, and we started, you know, made sure that they had food. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of my days off, I had to pick up a guy that was walking down, uh, I can't remember which interstate it was, in, near Charlotte, but uh, took him all over, got him fed. Uh, strange thing with that, that situation, when I went to go back and find him, the place said there was no one by that name. I still to this day don't know if I had an angel that God had me pick him up and make sure I took the whole day with him and then go back and see if was he okay. And he said, there's no one checked in by that name. We have no record. I said, I checked him in. No, there's no, there's no name. I brought him here. No, he's never been here. So I, to this day, I don't know. But God was just speaking to us saying, I want you to give out of faith. And so we have to have that personal conviction. But we also understand, let me go back, that the second point here, it's for what? The purposes of God. Because God doesn't really need anything from us, but he is changing us. Amen? He doesn't need anything from us, but he is changing us. The practical, practical purpose of people giving, you see in the verses, um, in verse 32, they made ordinances to take uh, one-third of the shekel. Uh, verse 35, to bring the first fruits. Verse 36, the firstborn. Verse 37, the first fruits. Verse, 30, uh, verse 36, that is. Then verse 37, the first fruits, the tithes, the offerings. All these, into, verse 38, into the storehouses. We understand that the people giving of the tithes, now they're under the law. Again, this is, they are under the law. We're under the age of grace. There are some differences here, but nevertheless, uh, looking at it from what God is doing in the spiritual realm, the practical purpose of giving of tithes and first fruit offerings was for the temple, as I mentioned earlier, the sacrifices, the Levites, the storehouse reserves, and the service needs. All of those things. It spells out what these things are for. Uh, but why is the temple there? Why is the temple there at all? The same reason we're now living temples. We are living temples. Amen? You're not made of Jerusalem stone. You're made of H2O and a bunch of other things, right? So uh, we are now living temples, and the body of Christ uh, has made living temples out of us all. And we're to worship the Lord. We're to grow in our relationship with God. We're to bring light to others, which is uh, to serve. And to the Christian, the Lord gets even more personal to us in what he's done for us. As I mentioned earlier, when Jesus said you are bought with a price, he goes on to say, therefore, or Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, of Jesus, he's bought us with a price. He goes on to say, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So in other words, Paul's saying everything about you is now to glorify God because he's bought you. He now owns you lock, stock, and barrel. He's purchased you with what? His blood. So he said, now all of that you are now belongs to God. To glorify God, to worship him, to grow, to serve, to give him all. And these things will require faith. Because the world has a lot of things that scare us. It will require faith. It's going to require steps of faith. Abraham had to take steps of faith. Man, I, Lord, I've got, I, I kind of know the terrain here in Ur. I've got it made. I've got a decent job or whatever. You want me to go out in faith? But the just to live by faith. First fruit giving is based on faith. 
First fruit given is based on faith. But it's also based on gratitude because if Jesus bought us with a price, he saved us from something. And that's something to be gracious. Very, you know, the, the more me and my wife when we first got saved, we looked at the Bible, it wasn't unreasonable. We talked about Paul says this in, in Romans 12.1, um, to present our bodies as living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. But we talked about the Greek word means logical. It is your logical service. He says it makes total sense if God has saved you from everything that you would give him everything. Amen? You're saved from an eternity that now that uh, this vapor of a life you would live for his glory and for his purposes. So first fruit giving is based on faith and gratitude. It's not based on fear or guilt. Do you hear that? The people were not, God was not laying a guilt trip on them. God was saying, this is what I created you for. This is logically how I have ordained you. Not This is not to cause you to fear. This is to cause you to be walking by faith and have gratitude. Giving based on anything else will do no good. If you're giving based on fear, it's not a good place to be. Giving based on, it, based on faith and gratitude will change everything. Uh, it's not a substitute for giving something else. Um, uh, Cain tried that, right? Well, I'll just give God something else. That doesn't work either. The Lord wanted the purity, he wanted the worship, and he also wanted the giving. All three were important as they were recommitting in this covenant. Now, understand that people can tithe, people can give offerings, and not even be saved. You guys agree with that? Sure. A lot of religious people are going to, unfortunately, stand before the Lord and Jesus will depart from me. But I, but I, I tithe every week. Matter of fact, I gave 12%, Right? They might say something, and so you can actually do some of these things and not even be saved. Some have an abundance, some money's not a big deal. There's such an abundance, uh, but, and, and, and they'll actually be, I've met Christians, oh, well, I, I'll say, assume they're saved. I've met Christians that can give financially, but have no ability to give love or time. You ever meet people like this? They'll stroke a check, but ask them to be loving and kind, you're like, I have unsaved friends that are nicer than you. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you're looking at this situation, you're like, I don't think this is the, the, the heart of Christ, you know. But you can kind of uh, have something in that respect. And so God really wants to change all those things, right? All of it. But God, he, God doesn't give us a buffet line of being disciples. I, you know, uh, it's like the cafeteria. I'll take this, I'll skip that, I'll take this, I'll take that. He doesn't give us a buffet line. He says, these are the things. Uh, we're all called to be disciples. We're all called to pray. We're all called to study. We're all called to share. We're all called to serve. And we're all called to give. There's no exceptions. They're going to say, what? Well, you know, that list, I'm called to three of them. Everyone's called to all of them. But the purpose is what? The purpose, again, is bringing God glory. And by faith, both cheerful and thankful... And it doesn't happen overnight, by the way. I mean, uh, I, I post, if you follow me on Facebook, I post this week, uh, eight times it's recorded in the New Testament, Jesus said these words, be of good cheer. Eight times it's recorded. I count that seven days plus a bonus, right? Eight times it's recorded to be of good cheer. Now, Jesus told it to Paul when he was headed to Jerusalem to be in prison. Paul, be of good cheer. But I got to tell you, if Jesus came to you in the night like he did Paul, literally... Paul, he literally, whether he saw Jesus that night or heard him, we know he heard him. If Jesus tells you audibly, be of good cheer, that's a motivator for you. 
That's better than your boss saying you're getting a bonus, right? Jesus said, I've got your back. Be of good cheer. But it, God wants it to grow and cheer because now the fact that Jesus had to say that to an apostle tells you that sometimes apostles struggle with cheer. Does that make sense? The fact that Jesus had to say it to an apostle tells me that sometimes the apostles struggle with cheer. So if you struggle sometimes with thankfulness, gratitude, or cheer, you're not alone. Even apostles did. But you have to trust God, not your feelings. Right. Not what some other person or... You have to trust what the Bible says and trust by faith. In other words, that gratitude, God is worthy of us giving back to him, and we have to depend on him that he'll bless that obedience. Do you believe God will bless obedience? You better believe he will. There's 2,000 years of saints worth proving it, and 6,000 if we go back to the Old Testament as well. I believe many believers, I really believe many believers want to be first fruit givers. I, I meet a lot of believers over the years. When I lived in Florida, when I lived in North Carolina, here in Virginia, when I've traveled, I meet a lot of believers I think want to, really sincerely want to be first fruit givers. They want to take those steps. They want to give generously to people in need. They want to give to the work of the gospel and the Great Commission. They want to give to the church. They want to give to missions. They want to give to discipleship. They want to do these things which are all part of the umbrella of the Great Commission, and yet they still don't. They want to. They really do. What, what is it that's holding them back? Now, Jesus said these poignant words. You probably read this before, right? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, do not wait until your heart gets it right. Just get your treasure there and your heart will follow. This is a really almost counterintuitive way of, well, no, not almost counterintuitive, very counterintuitive for a way we would uh, probably think. We, most people say, well, well, I feel like it, I'll do it. Jesus says, you do it and you'll feel like it. When I, when I have that butterfly feeling about it all, Jesus said, that doesn't happen until heaven, my friend, in some, respect, in some areas. Some of those will not happen until this side of eternity. So Jesus said, but you get your... But there's something more he's saying here, even than the counterintuitive approach. Jesus is, is, is making a... He made a lot... People like to ignore what Jesus said about money because people love their money more than they love God. Remember he said, uh, if you gain the whole world... It'd be better to, well, you couldn't purchase your soul if you could gain the whole world, right? It'd be better to be saved than if you gain the whole world. That, that, not a good trade, is it? Whole world or salvation. But he also said that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, he, he's saying that people are so in love with the security that they think money gives them. And so with this statement, he had a lot of statements about money. I'm not going through them all, but he had a lot of statements about it. But this one is really, really um, eye-opening to something beyond just the counterintuitive to do it and that our heart will follow. It also tells us that where our finances are tells us our real commitment to the kingdom of God. It he says, where your treasure is, that's your heart. So the, the, if you say, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, Jesus, at some point, your giving will follow, 
that because you will say the kingdom of God is a priority in my life. If it's not a priority in life, then it'll never line up. The heart and the giving, those two things will not line up. Are our lives aligned to God's purposes? Now, in Jerusalem, they weren't. For the longest time, the people, their hearts were not aligned to the purposes of God. Their hearts were aligned to other things. They wanted to build the business, do this, do that, but they were not aligned to the plans and purposes of God. So our giving tells us where our heart really is. And God wants to move us from fear to cheer. Amen? From fear to cheer. Because again, fear does hold a lot of people back. Like I said, I really believe they want to be generous givers. They want to be first fruits givers, but they're afraid that God will abandon them if they do that. Like I said, God, if you see... My, my wife and I, when we started giving, we were $80,000 in debt. Right? Back in late 90s. Like four or five years later, it got to zero. It was all the Lord. And, and one, one, one statement that did, hit, it, while I was kind of wrestling with the Lord about it all, I'm riding down the road, and Dr. Tony Evans, you ever hear the Urban Alternative on the radio? Dr. Tony Evans says, I was counseling this couple, and they said, we got this, Dr. Evans, this. And he goes, better start giving. And I like the Holy Spirit was saying it to me. He said, you have, I highlighted all these scriptures. It's time for you to exercise your faith. Do you want to invest in the kingdom of God, or do you want to keep investing in Applebee's or, you know, uh, BW3s or all these other things. What are you going to do, right? What's going to be the commitment level you're going to make? Uh, we won't know cheer if we just stay in fear, will we? And we won't know the enjoyment and the blessing and seeing of God's work until we commit. The people in Jerusalem, they had to make the commitment. They had to sign on the dotted line and say, Lord, we're going to do this. American theologian Shaler Matthews says this. He said, if it is more blessed to give than receive then most of us are content to let the other fellow have the greater blessing. <laughs> well, I'll let you have the blessing. Why? Because of fear. We don't really believe it. Jesus, by the way, that, Jesus said that. When you ever hear that, those were Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. And he lived it out, didn't he? He left all the riches of heaven to, get, to pour it out. We're afraid God will fail us, uh, and I've been there. Fear is a snare. I battle different fears more than I battle money fears today, even though I've taken bigger steps of financial faith being in the ministry than I was before. Uh, money fears are less of my... I have my other you know, irrational things like the rest of us do. But they're always a snare. They're always a snare. Trust and surrender is deliverance for us. Did you hear me? Trust and surrender is actually deliverance. Do you think that the people in Jerusalem were going to be abandoned by recommitting to these covenant things? No. No, God was going to bless them in the process. He can handle your heart. He can handle your lungs. He can handle your brain. He can handle your kidneys. He can handle your nervous system. But somehow God can't handle our material needs. Think about it. Well, I trust God with all the rest of the stuff, just not what's in Citibank. And I'm preaching to me, too. We, we have to really understand that what are we saying? I believe God knows these steps are not easy, and that's why he put them in, because they make us take these steps of faith. They make us align our heart to our treasure, to the, the kingdom of God. So even with all the Lord's done for our souls, and he's graciously gives, he has this gentle prompt to us. Again, he wasn't really beating me and my wife up in the late 90s. He was gently saying, it's time. It's time to take that step. It's time to take that step of faith. You need to do this. You'll, that $80,000 debt is never going away at your current plan. This is not going to happen. 
And, and, and we, but then we fell in love with the kingdom of God and the work of God and people. And, and so God says these words through Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Malachi 3.10, bring, bring all your tithes into the storehouse. There may be food in my house and try me now and seize. Thus says the Lord, if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, I do not preach that this means God's going to make you have all your wildest dreams come true money-wise. But Jesus said, my peace will be your peace. And you will actually be more excited about someone getting saved than a new car. Did you know most Christians, I'm telling you, Facebook is a great scientific experiment. It is a great. Post anything of eternal value, you'll get like two likes. Post, post some brand new dress somebody bought. Oh, my goodness. It is the, I mean, there's 300 likes, and, uh, and let me share it on top of it all. It is the greatest scientific experience of what really matters to people. Most people couldn't care less if someone got saved. But when you start to be a giver, you'll care more about a soul than you will about the new car smell. You just will. You'll never be convinced of that until the Holy Spirit says, this matters more. No one else will convince you. It is the Holy Spirit will finally say, these are the things. Heaven rejoices over one soul. It does not rejoice who wins today's uh, football championship games. And I like football. Remember, I told the other guys, I fasted three days. I didn't check any sports stuff for three days because it was just me dying in my flesh. I actually like that stuff. I wish I didn't sometimes. But nevertheless, I do recognize that those things have no eternal value. Do you? These promises that God gives us are not why we should give to God, but they are reinforcing that he'll never forsake us. They're not why we should give, but they reinforce. They're God saying, I've got you. Give for the... Give cheerfully, and I'll take care. We know when steps of faith and surrender are taken, he wants to change the heart. Our faith still has to grow, brothers and sisters. It has to grow. We had to start giving, as I told you earlier. Uh, But again, once we do these things and we become generous and faithful givers, we find that we were created not to acquire stuff, not to accumulate stuff. That's how I, man, if you could read the book, God of Money, it, it's been fantastic. It, it tells, like, uh, for example, some, some of the people in there that have come to really um, see what God's real purpose for their lives are. Uh, one couple in there, they, they decided once they paid off all, really, they downsized, and they realized that um, once one of them lost a high-paying job, all their friends that had made similar money abandoned them friend-wise, because they all of a sudden couldn't go to the same restaurants as them, and they couldn't take the same vacations. And you find out everyone measures themselves in this country by what they have. Yes. And once they realize that God doesn't measure them by that, he measures them by their heart, and they realize, why are we doing this? And when they came back into the same level of income, they said, we are not going to return to that level of living anymore. They changed their level of living, and they give like 80% of what they make now to missions and, and, and the kingdom work. Now, they're very high-paying people. But they went back to those same really high salaries but refused to live that way anymore because they realized if Jesus were to return tomorrow, they would give an account to say, why are you keeping up with the Joneses when I told you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature? And then just stories in the book of people that used to not care that much that people down the neighborhood, they couldn't even have heat, 
and they were uh, working on their fifth flat screen in the house, right? I'm telling you, God is going to call the church into account for this stuff someday. Do you believe me on this? And so he was calling the people in Jerusalem into account and say, you guys are all worried about your paneled houses, but the house of the Lord is in disrepair. That's what also the book of Haggai talks about that. And he said, these things must stop. And they cheerfully stop. So now I'm not even jealous. I, I used to work in a much different line of work than ministry. I'm not jealous of people that are bri- driving brand new $75,000 cars. I couldn't care less. Let's not be impressed by it anymore. Amen? Amen. Instead, be impressed that Jesus is actually doing revival in India or Africa or South America or Central America. Those are the things that God says, give to those things. That's laying up treasure where? In heaven. And this is what he was doing. I know it's the Old Testament and we're in the New Testament, but he was still saying that first fruit giving is that God would actually spread the love of him beyond us. And so... You know, we're not to hoard these things. Instead, say, Lord, all that I have is yours for your glory, for my growth, and for touching and changing lives. You see, as we said, I'm more coming to a close here. God has never needed anyone's financial resources. Any more than, you know, he doesn't even need our worship. He doesn't even need your worship. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need what we have. He doesn't need it. The point is, he's worthy of it. Amen? Amen. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our giving, which, by the way, is worship, a form of worship. And we need his help in our lives, and we need his blessing on our lives. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you don't need these things from us, but you invite us into the kingdom, into the kingdom work that, Lord, that we would be first fruit givers according to grace. You've bestowed grace upon us. Lord, we want to be gracious in giving back to you. And Lord, there's so many people that you want us to help. And so Lord, we just ask and pray that uh, where there's fear, where there's ignorance, where there's mistrust, Lord, that you would dissolve these things and give us a personal exhortation, and encouragement from the Holy Spirit to each and every one of us become first fruit givers, generous, willing, but cheerful givers, not begrudging, not refusing, but cheerful givers. As the people in Jerusalem experienced, Lord, when they saw revival take place, Lord, we would see these things take place. Uh, Lord, all of them are important. We acknowledge that. And we ask that you and you alone would make these things clear to the body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.